We are continuing in our Acts series. I will read today's scripture, which comes from Acts chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. Please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Amen. This is the word of God at this time. Please give your attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Pastor Dan. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Amen. Well, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to share God's word. And I've never stopped appreciating the privilege it is to speak to God's people, and especially regarding something that's so endearing to my heart. As we uh, look at this text, the theme that comes out at us is a mission trip that this Paul, this disciple of Jesus Christ, this one who was sent out to be a missionary, uh, is, con- is given a, a prophecy of what was, a, what was going to happen if he entered into the city of Jerusalem. And his response was so interesting, that his response was so powerful. And he said, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When I read this text, I wondered to myself, is this the claim of a spiritual claim of a super apostle? Or were his words something that we might expect from any normal disciple, follower of Christ, a Christian? In my years of ministry, one of the things that has perplexed my heart is the question, why is it that we, who have been saved by the redeemed grace of God, and sometimes many of us with tears coming to confess and thanking God and thanking Jesus for dying for my sins, that we have never known such a love. I've never known someone who is willing to lay down his life for me. And even that, not just the life, but it was the weight of what he carried, my sins. And yet, whether it be months or years later, these very same people, including myself, would sometimes forget to spend time with him. That we become almost indifferent We become busy with life and filled with distractions, and we forget about the very person we call our greatest love. And so in today's passage, the warning and the response is very interesting, and the question for us is, is that something unique for super-Christians, or is this something that perhaps we might look at ourselves and say, is that what I'm willing to do? and follow Jesus to do. The context today is in the city of Philippi, and Paul is staying at the home of Philip, the evangelist. He is 
well known in Acts uh, when he was uh, an evangelist and led a eunuch to know Christ and be baptized. And yet the prophecy of this prophet Agabus might have been more of a prediction than it was a prohibition. He was not telling Paul not to go into Jerusalem, but to understand what's awaiting you when you go into Jerusalem. John R. Stott, a, a, a teacher and a commentator of God's Word, writes about how Luke's statement is a condensed way of saying that the warning was divine while the urging, the human urging to not go into Jerusalem was human. And that the Spirit's word to Paul, combined with the compulsion to go with the warning of the consequences, was an understanding that this is part of the journey that you are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the conclusion of this thought and commentary was the idea that we are here, given a, a, a picture of Paul, to admire his courage and his perseverance. That like Jesus, whom he follows and loves, was willing to go steadfastly into Jerusalem. And like Jesus again, even though there was a divine uh, prediction of what was suffering and waiting for him, it did not deter him from continuing to go into Jerusalem, just like his Lord continued to the cross. In the big picture, what Paul is doing in missions work is what every disciple is called to do. At the end of Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples before his ascension, he told them to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he gave them a promise of comfort, that I will be with you to the very end of the age, that as you do this, you will never be alone. When we take a closer picture of what's going on here at Christ Central, just a few weeks ago, we gave birth to a, a church plant called Kindred Presbyterian. And church plants, why do we do them? Why do churches plant new churches? For the very reason of making disciples wherever we go. That we long to continue to fulfill the very work Christ began with his disciples, and the remaining generations of disciples will continue on in that very ministry of making more disciples. And then now we take an inward self-portrait, and we ask ourselves, what is it that God saved me for? What is God's purpose in my life? To take us from hell to heaven? Or was it about something different? A new birth, a new identity, becoming a new creation where Christ in us is not just a statement, but a reality where Christ now becomes more and more of who we are. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Harold, our lead pastor, gave a message entitled, Changed by Conversion. And there was something he said there that I, I quote, I want to quote, and, and, and I agreed so heartily that I want to share it with you. He said, do you know what God's goal or definition of success in, is in your life? It is for you and I to become mirror images. It is to re-image Jesus. That, that will be our deepest and greatest fullness of life. That is what you were born and born again to be. That is what God wants you and this church to become, changed lives, changed how? In the very image of Jesus Christ. What God began to work at salvation, although he delivers us from judgment and wrath, and we, we think about a destination, that is not the end all. Because there are a lot of people who think, well, if I, as long as I believe in Jesus and go to heaven, that's all that matters. What happens in that life in between? 
And I want you to understand that you're not waiting to be with God. You are with him. You're not waiting to enjoy this relationship. You have that at the moment you confess your faith in Christ. It's not about destinations. The destination is only as beautiful as the very person that we're speaking about. And so I noticed this tension in myself and in, in the life of the church where our goals in life and God's goals in life may not be aligned. I wanted a comforting, convenient, uplifting, encouraging Christianity and worship. I don't want to hear about hardships. I don't want to hear about lament, lament and sorrows, although there is an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. That part of our journey with God includes our tears, our hardships, and our sorrows. And when you read through the New Testament and the Old, we begin to quickly see the theme, that the theme, what God has for us, is about a relationship that brings us comfort even though we walk through the valleys of the shadow of death. And the real tension in cultural Christianity versus the call to discipleship, there are a couple of things that I want to highlight because of this text of, and the response of the Apostle Paul. The first tension that I want us to look at is that following Christ is not about a destination, but about a person. When Paul was given this perplexing prophecy that if you go into the city, you will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And, and in a lot of ways, we may be thinking that Paul's response, his willingness to do this, ultimately was not about the courageous willingness to be willing to be prisoned or even to die. It was about this love relationship he has for a person named Jesus, whose name he wanted to honor, even if it meant prison and his death. That believing in Jesus is ultimately about a transformation of becoming more and like him. And that as we look at this, it speaks and defines a reconciled relationship. That this man was once a persecutor of the church. One that was confronted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And in that response and this confrontation, what we see is a changed life that no longer is Saul but Paul. No longer was a persecutor of the church, but now a builder up of the church through the preaching of the gospel. And all this because of a deep love. What would take a man to step into a city where he knew he would face hardships and sufferings? It is not because he's just bold or, or brave. I want to propose to you it's because it's a love. It's a deep love for the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, verses 3 to 6, he says, if I go and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And then obviously Thomas responds and says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am that way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Because the place that he's going, the Father's house, it's the Father. The Father is there. And he's going to take us back to be with him. That we may be where he is. 
Not only is it about the person of Jesus Christ that makes heaven so beautiful and glorious and desirable, but it's even defining what eternal life is. In John 17, 3, Jesus in his prayer before the night of his crucifixion, he prays this and he defines eternal life this way. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's about knowing God. And we know God because of the very person whom he sent, Jesus Christ. For so long in my years of growing up in Christianity and the Christian church, I've heard evangelists preaching constantly about the idea of going to heaven. That if you were to die today, where would you go? And we, we, we think about the image of heaven and we don't know what it will be like. And I wonder why the Bible is intentionally so silent on what it might fully look like. I mean, we see the roads and what it's paved with, but what will we do there? What will life look like? And maybe perhaps one of the reasons is because it's not so much about the place as it is about the person that makes that place so beautiful. The reason I say this is because a lot of times, again, in Christianity, people are find their security and comfort in knowing that they're not going to go to hell, they're going to go to heaven. Well, that's great. But why is heaven so desirable? Not just because of avoiding punishment and suffering, but because of the person who is either present or absent. In fact, when we, when we uh, attend funerals, and this is one of the most hardest times, and I'm not trying to diminish the heartache, but one of the things you hear people say, even well-meaning Christians, is when we think about heaven, we long to see the loved ones that have gone before us. I long to see my grandmother. I long to eventually see my parents. They're still with me, though. But in an interesting way, what's silent is I don't hear too many people mention when we go to heaven, I long to see Jesus. And I think one of the reasons is because a lot of times heaven was such a theme that Jesus was the means to the end of heaven. How do you get to heaven? Through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is someone you have to believe in so you can go to heaven. But actually the scripture doesn't speak of it that way. Heaven is actually the means to know and to be with Christ forever. We know the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all our being. And anything that takes the place of that is what we call idolatry. Even very good things, our children, our families, our work, they can become idols because they mean more to us and they grip our hearts with love more than it does for our love for our Redeemer. And this is so important because the greatest gift that God can give to us in our life is not a better place, it's not more things, it's not more time with our loved ones, it is to know him who defines life. He is the life. He is the way. And he is the truth. And it is he who makes any place the best place to be. In fact, perhaps in one sense, hell is not so much about the darkness or the fire or the suffering as it is the absence of the noble goodness and loving presence of God. 
And so we talk about knowing Christ as inviting him into our hearts. That would you, would you invite Jesus? And, and, and sometimes well-meaning evangelists might say and por- portray God as maybe perhaps someone who's pleading, please accept me, please let me come into your heart. God loves you, and he wants to come in and have a relationship. Would you accept him? And so back in the day, 50, 100 years ago, that was, a, that was a call to invite God into the warmest place where we call home, where we rest. It is an invitation for special people. We don't invite anyone off the street. It's for special guests. And if you invite Jesus into your heart, wow, that's a very wonderful invitation. But in a culture that's entitled, in a culture that thinks that whoever makes the final decision is the one who is empowered to direct that relationship, that's a dangerous thing. Because all of a sudden, we get comfortable as if, you know, God wants me. You know what? I know. Of course, everyone wants me. No. I know no, none of us probably think that way. But why, what keeps us? What is it that might actually take us from tears of appreciation to indifference? Or apathy. When you think about the confession of sin and pardon that we just did, and we do every week, which I love, because it reminds me who is pleading and who is making the final decision to forgive. It is we who need to be reconciled. It is we who need forgiveness. It's we who need Jesus. And it is he who decides to forgive us and to receive us. I love the picture of the thief dying on the cross next to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 42 and 43, this thief says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The reason why I love that is because it was the thief who said, please remember me. And Jesus said, I will. That's the gospel. Please forgive me. Please accept me. Please receive me. And God, through Jesus Christ, said, I do. So first of all, we want to understand that following Jesus is not about a destination, but about a person. Secondly, following Jesus is not about a comfortable or better life, but about following Jesus without limits. What Jesus calls his followers to do is to follow him on the path of the cross, not the path of comfort and ease. You see, when the, the friends heard the prophecy of what would happen if Paul went into Jerusalem. It says that they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And since he, was persu- he would not be persuaded, they ceased to try to persuade him. And they said simply, let the will of the Lord be done. The response to the prophecy by these friends was understandable. I mean, if it was our father or our brother or a close friend who we heard this prophecy, many of us would probably say, We don't want you to go. But Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem. Not only because of this word, but even previously. He knew in Acts 20. In verses 22 and following, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained, compelled by the Spirit of God, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. 
And he says, I get it. I know what's going to come. I've already been told by the Spirit of God. And he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My friends, this account of his life was not because he had to, but because he wanted to. It wasn't just a duty. It was his love response to Jesus. And so I wondered, why would the Holy Spirit tell Paul what was about to happen? Was it to scare him? I don't think so. Was it to prevent him from going into Jerusalem? I don't think so. And so I was reminded again that as the Holy Spirit makes it known, God knows what's going to happen. God knows the danger Paul's about to go into. But God reminds us through the word and through future words that he has people in those cities. And he reminds us even in the Great Commission that I will be with you when you go. I really believe this was to comfort Paul that as you face these kings, these emperors, these opposition, when you stand to proclaim the gospel, do not be afraid because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is with you. And then you might ask, when did Paul decide that his life was of no value or precious to himself? I don't think it was toward the end of his life when he realized persecution and death was awaiting. I think it was from the beginning. From the beginning, he understood the call was not going to be easy. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross. A cross is not something you wear. A cross is not just hardships. The cross was an instrument of death. To take up his cross daily and follow me. Die to yourself daily. That what you live, what lives in you, is this newness of life. Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Everything you think defines the good life will cause you to lose it. But whatever is the good life, God will help you to see that it's much more than the things around you. But it is the deepest joy and comfort that you find in this fallen world full of hurts and pains. You find the greatest peace in the midst of the storms of life. So why are there limits in our following Christ? I have one thought, which is fear. You know, in, as, as, as sinful beings, as fallen beings, and habitually used to trying to control things, which we call anxiety and stress, there is, first of all, the fear of the unknown. And because there are a bunch of what-ifs, I'm not sure if I can fully go into this, which is a reflection of the lack of trust in God or God's goodness. And here, one of the things that, in, in our own fears, we try to control what we cannot control. And so there's a fear of the unknown, the fear of the tomorrow, the fear of things that I don't know will be happening. And so I don't know if I can fully follow God because I don't know what will happen. Or the fear of losing my fantasy future. 
It's the perfect life that you envision. When you're in your 20-somethings, you envision what the next 50 or 60 years will look like. And those of us who are in our 50s and 60s, we can tell you it's not very much what, it, what I thought it was in the 20s. But this is not a bad thing. I didn't lose things by following Christ. That what is best and good, I began to see through his eyes and not through the American dream. Or what about the fear that God's will is not good? You question the will of God. My definition of good may not be his definition of good. And I think I know what good is, good is and it's better. So I want to tell God what good is really good that I want from him. And when he doesn't give it to me, I question his love, I question his presence, and I question his will. There was one time when I came to fully decide to follow Christ in my junior year in college. I told God that I would serve him, maybe as a deacon, maybe even as an elder if he would have me. Maybe as a pastor, but definitely not as a missionary. God, I will not be a missionary for you. And by the way, please don't tell God what he cannot do. Because as soon as I started seminary, I went on a summer mission for the next six years. I wanted to join a campus ministry that I was a part of. And so I went to the director of that ministry and I said, I would love to be staff. He said, great, you need to go on a mission trip. I said, no, no, no. That word mission, it was kind of like, you know, no, right? So I just said, no, 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 I'm not interested in missions. I just want to go on the campus and kind of be there and continue on what, I, what blessed me so much. He said, that's great, but you need to go to missions. And I, after a little dialogue, he said, look, if you want to know what we're about, you have to go on missions. And, and I finally surrendered, and I said, okay, fine, I'll go. And every year that I, God sent me, and this is how stubborn I was, the question was, Jimmy, will you go wherever I send you? And my answer was, Maybe. I will go to countries that look like America, have the comforts of America. I will not go to third world countries. Guess where he sent me? I became the director. They needed a leader. And of course, I went to a third world country. Why am I sharing this with you? Because I questioned whether God's will was really the best and good for me. I wanted to define what life should look like. I wanted to define what my following would look like. And what I began to realize is that after several trips and finally surrendering to him, I realized I wouldn't lose anything. That my reluctance was actually misled and misinformed. I was so wrong. That in some of these trips, as I'm sitting on the side waiting to preach the gospel, and a room is packed with children and adults and people looking through the windows, that as I stood up to preach the gospel, all I could think of is how much he loves them. And before I could even utter a word, I began to realize, as he loves these people, that's how much he loves me. And I began to realize with tears, wow, what an amazing love. That he would take people all across the world just to tell them that he loves them. You know, the word missionary is not in the Bible. The word disciple is. And what the missionaries are doing is simply following Jesus to make disciples of all nations. The early church were called disciples. They eventually started calling them Christians, which means the same thing. They're followers of Christ. 
And what missionaries are in other countries, not to diminish their, their sacrifice and labor, but they are disciples, making disciples in another country, but they have to learn a different language and, and learn about a different culture and leave some of the family and friends to do so. But I want you to understand that there is no uh, grades of Christian. There's no super Christians and normal Christians. There's no missionaries and pastors and everyone else is Christian. No, there's no such thing. The Bible doesn't speak of it that way. There are offices who lead and, and the others who support. But the reality is we all are committed and called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to follow him without limits. And God's grace meets us at every turning point to be able to walk with us and journey with us to learn to let go one after another, whatever limits there are in your life. You know, one time someone asked me, hey, Jim, how do you feel about your son Joshua if he became a pastor or a missionary? You know what my response was? No. That's not And I wondered why. Because we, we don't mind when other people go, but oh, do I want that for my kid? How about for yours? In place of the uh, limits, I want to suggest that we, we replace the limits with trust and surrender. Trust because it's about a God who is worthy of it. He just demonstrated he, is, he has proven his love for us on the cross, the sending of his own son. Surrender because it is the smartest thing any person can do because in light of a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, and loving God, to surrender to this God is smart. It's wise. And the application of this, the way we practice surrender and trust is prayer. Prayer to be able to say to him, I trust you. And even if I make my request, I surrender to your will. You know, Tim Keller writes, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. I love that. If you knew everything God knows, you would ask for that. And so the prayer request, prayer goes like this. God, I would like this, and I'm requesting you of this. There's nothing wrong with making requests. But because you see what I can't see, and you know what I don't know, if there's something better out there for me, I want that. You know how I learned this? As a parent. Sometimes my kids would want something so small, and I'm thinking of things ten times bigger. I'm like, you sure you just want that for Christmas? Really? Because I was going to get you this. And they're like, oh, really? I want that. <laughs> Tim Keller also writes, the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will into his. You see, the struggle of prayer is a battle of the wills. Because I want what I define as good and life and worth living for. But God wants us to see that there's something even greater than what you're thinking. And you and I will only leave this world through the eyes of death. And until that time, what is the greatest gift God can give you? More things? Long life? Loved ones till the end? I want to suggest to you that as we live and go through hardships that everyone goes through, because Christians are not immune to hardships, the greatest gift that God gives to us 
is to know who he is and his presence. The comfort of knowing that you're not alone. That as you go through the valley of the shadows of death, you have nothing to fear, for he is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. You know, one of the things that I discovered in my mission trips is that I love ministry, but it's exhausting. And sometimes I forget why I do what I do. And then I go on a mission trip, and, and physically, it's draining. Food-wise, where we sleep, where we use the restrooms, all uncomfortable. But when I come back, I feel so rejuvenated. Why? Because ultimately, my rest was not defined by a destination like Hawaii or comfortable beds. What I longed and what my soul needed was for my heart to remember again, I am with him, and he's with me. And he's doing wonderful things, and I got a chance to see that for a little while. And it brought back an understanding of what ministry was about. As we launched out Kindred, what are we praying for Kindred? That everything goes easy and well for Pastor Dinko and for the church? No, because they're going to have hardships. What we're praying is for strength and endurance to be gospel witnesses in a very difficult time and culture. Next month, a few of us are going to visit the Nam family, the first missionaries that were commissioned out of Christ Central. That David and Susanna, along with their three children, Ethan, Owen, and Avery, uh, we're going to spend some time with them. And they're looking forward to it, and we're looking forward to it. And I want you to understand that as we sent out missionaries to Taiwan, I also want you to understand every week, Christ Central commissions out people and families into Cerritos, Placentia, Yorba Linda, Buena Park, Fullerton, Brea, and all the different cities that our members live, go to work, go to school. You and I as disciples of Christ are commissioned out every week to live a life that bears witness of the gospel to our families, to our communities, to our neighbors, just like the Noms are in Taiwan. And I say this to remind you Remind all of us, the missionaries are simply disciples following Jesus without limit. That surrender is the natural fruit of faith. That in the practice of your faith daily, it is to admit and confess that what God wants is better than what I think I want. And the context of this is always in the context of the church. Because as Paul was traveling throughout chapter 20, 21, and so on, that every city he visits, whether it's Tyre, whether it's Ptolemais, or whether it's uh, Caesarea, that every place he visits, he found disciples and he stayed with them. It's what, that's, it's what kept the physical life that he lived to be enjoyable along with others. And so how will God make disciples of all nations? It's when his disciples around the world learn to live and follow him without limits. And God patiently is working that in each of us and in each church. The theme of our life, I want to suggest to you, for us to remember that as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Obviously, you and I were not on the cross. It's a picture of dying. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a life of gratitude. This is a life that remembers the gospel. That I should have died, but he died. And therefore, I willingly want to live each day following him. And no matter how many times you and I fail, we have the freedom to live imperfectly because he lived perfectly. We have the freedom to even struggle with our will against the Father's will because he did the Father's will perfectly. And where you and I fail, we are so thankful that Christ succeeded. And we are so able now gladly, even with failures, to live an imperfect following life because Jesus followed and did the will of the Father so perfectly. I'm so thankful that he went to the cross. I'm so thankful. And so then our call is to follow him without limits. It's not the worst decision. There's no need to fear because he loves you. He will not want what's, what's second best or third best. He wants the very best. And he wants us to see that following him, man, that's the best life. I hope you and I will think about this as we journey in our walk with Christ together as a church, not only for kindred, but for Christ Central, for every believer and for every child and for every family and for every person that calls themselves Christians. I hope that we will do so without limit for his glory and for our benefit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this church that gathers weekly here. And there are days when our hearts are filled with so much weight. There are things that distract us and things that perplex us and things that we struggle with. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see whatever it is that might be a hindrance, whatever it is that might be a reason for us not completely just thrusting ourselves into your arms daily. I pray that you would help us to see it and slowly release our hands of it. The trust and, and submission and surrender to you is a wise and good thing. That we place our trust in you not only for salvation, but for every day that follows and every day that leads into eternity, may we follow you without limits. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.